0: Okay, so first one, virgin birth of Christ is clearly taught in the Old Testament. Well, you said it was false, I believe. Yeah, I, I think what we have to at least conclude that it's not clearly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it may be taught in the Old Testament, uh, but uh, <laughs> but there's some but there's some debate as to whether we're talking about the virgin birth of Christ in Genesis three or in Isaiah seven. Uh, but uh, that is the clearly element there that probably. Uh, catches me there. So if you ask me why, I'll say because the professor said so. <laughs> <Is that good>? <laughs> <laughs> well, remember we we talked about yeah I, a couple yeah. options with Isaiah chapter seven and eight, uh, but uh, yeah, it doesn't mention Christ. It kind of eludes. Certainly it. doesn't mention right. Christ, but whether it's even a direct reference to Christ is, is, is a question too but we'd say looking back it's probably clear whereas it wasn't well, obviously it's, them looking. it's obviously an analogy made there yeah. uh, at least that of type uh, but whether it's a prophecy is a, I suppose the question number two what is the theological significance of the differences between the genealogies of Christ in Luke and Matthew a lot of preposition phrases in there Not supposed to do that. Two two possible answers here. One's an easy one. One's a little more complex. But one's a legal lineage and one's a genealogical lineage. Okay, but I don't remember which one. Right. So Matthew's Matthew's Matthews gives Joseph's or the legal, and Luke gives Mary's or the biological. Although you know, as we. But as, 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 so, I mean, you could, you could put that down. Or you could even put something as simple as, well, because he was virgin born, and so mm-hmm. he needs two genealogies, and not just one. Normally it's just dad, but uh, dad isn't, dad, dad isn't real, you know, so, so he, there's, there's two. Was there a second, anybody get the second reason? From Jeremiah? Fulfill the prophecy of the Old Testament. Yeah, and they had to come through the, you mean the that Mary's line couldn't be the, couldn't be a king. Right. Well, yeah. Joseph. Joseph. I, mean, I mean. Right. Yeah. Right. So, Joseph. so Jeconiah, who was a direct descendant of Solomon, <clears throat> uh, of David through Solomon, a prophecy was made of him in Jeremiah that no king would ever come from his descendants. Uh, It doesn't mean he had no descendants. He had descendants, and in fact, Joseph is one of them. Um, And so the, the Israelites would have read that and have been aghast at it, thinking that the promise was cut off. But the promise is fulfilled through another son of David, Nathan, uh, who, if you follow his lineage down, comes to 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 Mary, and so he Jesus, uh, Jesus is a son of David through Nathan biologically. Legally, he's adopted into the line of Solomon, but uh, but recognize that he's not biologically in that line. Okay. Thirdly, here Jesus had to be virgin born because sin is transmitted through the father. False. False. Well, how would you make that true? What was that? How would you make that statement read true? He was born of a godly father. Okay. The human. So, so where? How is sin transmitted? Human father. Yeah. Yeah. Now again, the discussion of knee, nature and knee. personhood. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, but yeah, but how, how did you get your personhood? Through the union of male and female. Through so conception. Right. So if it was human, well, we end up with schizophrenic. Right. Exactly. So so in order to, yeah so in order. Jesus had to be virgin born because sin is transmitted through conception. Would would be probably the easiest way to make that true. I mean, there's other ways. Right. Right, yes. Normal conception. So, the two primary reasons for the virgin birth, at least as best as we can guess. Remember, we we said that there's no nowhere no words. It spelled out, but uh, nonetheless, so I think we can come up with some fairly firm conclusions to preserve Christ's. You basically just said it. Human nature. Yeah, but I put person. divine nature. In divine, yeah. divine person. Yes. Yeah, so yes. Yeah, so his singular personhood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so he so that he isn't a schizophrenic, as you yeah. said. Yes, yeah. that saves yeah. his singular personhood. And then to preserve Christ's, I put no original sin. Right? Yes, sinlessness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to preserve His singular personhood, <laughs> or singular personality, and to preserve His sinlessness. Those are the two points, A and B. Last two points we covered. Okay. So we've, we've pretty much we've pretty much hit uh, all the stuff on on the humanity of Christ that was sort of our bridge into the deity of Christ sort of spans both of those concepts uh, so now we come here to the deity of Christ and we're trying to establish the fact that in fact Jesus is God which all things being equal isn't all that hard to do nonetheless this is <laughs> this is the thing that uh, that really bothers a lot of people you know, the, the deity of Christ but, um, you know, we we there's not a whole lot on the humanity of Christ because in the Western mind uh, you know Jesus was a human that's 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 easy um, but that Jesus was God is a little bit more far-fetched to the natural mind okay uh, so when you look at the, look at the treatments of, of this topic, There's all kinds of information given to the deity of Christ. Very little given to the humanity of Christ. Uh, It's not the way it's always been throughout history. Um, uh, but, But it has been a greater problem, at least in the Western church, is the concern about the deity of Christ. And we want to establish here that the whole Christian system hinges on the fact that Jesus Christ is truly and fully God. And to deny this is... Really, to forfeit all credible claim to the name Christian, you don't. If you don't have this, the whole the whole system collapses. Okay. So, by the way, we're on page uh, or on top of page twenty-one for everybody except for uh, for Mark. You're probably somewhere. It's the same. It is the same twenty-one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. So somehow it's okay. So it's it's the okay. Well, good. Well, you've got you should have. I, did, I noticed that it got messed up later on there too, so we're, we're not going to be exactly the same. Uh, sorry about that. I, I left my—I I didn't actually go into my office today, and I thought oh, I could just use my computer, and then I realized that I'd left all those sheets uh, sitting in my in my office, and so I—I'm so sorry about that. Okay. So let's start here by saying that uh, there's explicit statements throughout the scripture, of course, that Jesus Christ is God. John 1, one is where we'll start, because I think that's really one of the more fundamental ones. Although it's one that's also disputed, particularly by uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, if you're familiar with their, their line of thinking. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I say here among the scripture writers, the Apostle John is the most relentless in affirming that Christ is God. He starts his gospel with this designation logos, which probably seems a little bit weird to us, but for whatever the reasons, it's probably a metaphor that points uh, to his function as the divine agent of revelation. He's the revealer. He's the word Uh, But whatever the use, the designee can plainly refer to no one other than Jesus. So this logos is clearly Jesus, and he's defined here very plainly as God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word, who clearly is Jesus in context, is God. A few points that the Word was in the beginning not only points to his preexistence, but probably draws attention to the similar construction in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. And that's really what the original, yeah, the original listeners probably would have heard John say, in the beginning, and they would have completed it, God created. But instead, it was in the beginning, the word was, and the word created. Okay? So the in the beginning, the word was, and then uh, we actually find that he is creator. Verse three, he is uh, uh, he is the source of light and life. Uh, all, by him, all things were created. He was the light of the world. He is he, in him, all have life. So, so he's he's cr- identified here not only as God but also as the creator God. Now, the question here comes with this this the fact that there's no article in front of God, and if you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to the door, and you've mentioned here. Well, John one says Jesus was God. They'll say, "Well, you've got a bad translation." Uh, they'll say, and they'll pull out their New World Translation, which, all, by all accounts, is a is a, tra- is a is a serviceable translation. You can get the gospel out of it. Use it. I mean, if they come to the come to the door and you want to show them the gospel, use their Bible. Uh, for the most part, it's adequate. Uh, but there's this one point here where they where they sort of get things wrong. Uh, so the fact that there's no God was so the word was God. And the fact that there's no article could mean that that means in the beginning was the word word was with God and the word was a god, an instantiation of this species of God. And so of course in in uh, Jehovah's Witness theology, there are multiple gods. They all come from a single, super-god, but then there are lesser gods that are created by him, okay? So the word was divine, perhaps, or the word was godly, but not the word was the one true and living God. While this construction without an article may point to such readings, a careful examination of this construction in John's writings, getting a little bit technical here, reveals that he uses this construction. Uh, there's no, con- you know, I, I have that written there. There's no article, preverbal, you know, so in front of the verb, predicate nominative construction. Reveals that he uses this construction 94% t- of the time to stress the essential qualities of the thing. Understood as such, we might render the clause something like this: "What God was, the Word was," or as the New English Translation puts it, "The Word was fully God, or His very essence." If this is the case, then John's statement of John Christ's deity could not have been made any more strongly than he did. This is actually a, a very strong way of pointing to to deity. Uh, if I can, I'm trying to bring this down. The cookies down here for for the language things. Perhaps maybe in English we might say something like, "He is a boy." What do we mean by that? Well, he is one of the males, you know, a male, uh, a male representative of his species. He's a boy. But if you but if you intonated that a little bit differently, he is a boy. What would we mean? Well, he's a quintessential boy. You know he's he he's, he he acts like boys. He, he had and so he's you know he's always busy. He's always dirty. He's always exploring. Okay, so he's a boy. Well, I didn't change the words at all, but you can see here. You know, I didn't and I didn't have an article in either one. He is a boy or he is a boy mean two different things. Same thing here is with with this uh, with this translation. It could mean it, it, syntactically, it's possible that it could mean that the word was a god. However, John almost never uses that this construction this way. Rather he uses it that the word was God. You know. He was he was all God. I mean he was fully God. He was truly God. So perhaps that I don't know if that helps, but maybe a, a comparison in English that we have. Okay? Now I I had written here in my notes, it must have been what Bill told me Mm-hmm about the predicate nominative for that. Yeah. That uh, God was the word. Yes. So it actually reads God was the word, not the word was God. So I mean it, it, it the most translators switch that around because it makes more sense to us. Uh, but but it actually sort of stands the Jehovah's Witness argument on its head. Right? So it's not just word was God, God was word. Which is which is interesting. Okay? John 1.18 No one has ever seen God but God the one and only. Or if you have other translation, it might say the one and only the the, the the only begotten, the God, the the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Okay? So no one has ever seen God. Normally, nobody gets to see God, except that God, the one and only, the only begotten God, this this one, this 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 description that John uses regularly for Jesus, the monogenes God, He who is normally at the side of the Father, He has divulged Him. Okay. So no, if you read the NIV two thousand eleven, anybody have that in front of you? I usually use NIV eighty four, but uh, I, I believe. Yeah, go ahead. 118? Yes, one eighteen. Okay. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. Yeah, I mean it's, it. It probably goes a little bit to interpretation um, <clears throat> more than just strict translation here, but it captures the idea. Okay. Um, And I think that's exactly the point that is is being made. And here's the first of five uses that John has of the Greek word monogenes, uh, famously translated only begotten in the King James and some other translation. And it follows an assumption here that this is a compound word. I think we talked about this last semester, so I don't think this is all new to you here follows an assumption that this is a compound word that combines manas only with ganao to be born. So the only one born is the translation. I say this assumption is almost certainly incorrect and bears almost all of the weight for the idea of eternal generation that we're going to talk about later and reject. Instead this term monogenes is probably Combination of the terms monos, same same word there, only, and genus, which is from genomai. So he is the only one of his kind. Okay, so again, uh, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. You know, scriptures talk about animals uh, reproducing according to their kind. That's about as close as they come. It comes to a genus. Okay, so. <laughs> so according to their genus okay according to their genus uh, they they reproduce so they so th- according to their kind and so here only kind so he's the only one of his kind and so that's why the NIV has it god the one and only so he is the only one of his kind So, as such, we should understand this phrase, that Christ was uniquely God, the only member of the divine species or kind, or in the words of the NIV, God the one and only. And almost all your lexicons uh, affirm that. Okay, John 20, 28. Thomas calls Jesus my Lord and my God and is not corrected in any sense, so we assume that must be the case. Romans 9.5, theirs is, are the talking about, you know, breaking into a context here, uh, but Paul's talking about his heritage as a Jew and of the advantages that Jews have. Theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praised and I do like the NIV reading here if you have a nasB in front of you it says here that Christ is God blessed forever which if you read it casually you might read here that Christ is simply God blessed so he's he's blessed of God but that's incorrect uh, it's he is God comma we might put a comma there uh, to perhaps to make it clear that Christ is God comma blessed forever. Okay, so he's God. Hebrews 1, 8, of the Son, the Father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So God speaks to the Son and calls him God. Paul uh, speaks of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ on numerous occasions here. And then uh, 1 John five twenty, Jesus Christ is the true God. Okay, so there's no shortage of, Instances here where Jesus Christ is called God. He also has other names given to him that are uh, divine as well. We can. We, there's quite a number. I, I, perhaps this seems a little bit tedious to us. Uh, I, this section perhaps may seem that way just because it, I, I sort of relentless here on the fact that Jesus is God. But the reason I, I I am is because this is this. I mean, this is the heart of Christianity here. And this is this is the one thing that people just won't take won't won't accept. You know, you talk to the average person on the street, you, you know Jesus? Yeah, I know who Jesus is. Who is he? Oh, he's a great man who's lived, the Bible written about him and such, but is he God? Well No. I mean, maybe he said he was, but no. Well, you know. So so that, that this is that's that's a great stumbling block that Jesus was God. So we're going to spend a little time here. Maybe we can go a little bit faster through this because I don't think I need to convince you guys. Uh, nonetheless, it's a it's a rather important thing that we get. Okay? Matthew 5:15 to 17. He is called Christ, the son of the living God. Remember this is Peter's famous confession here. Uh and the fact that it is, that it, it, the reason it's such a great confession is because he actually recognizes who Jesus is and correctly identifies him. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And obviously he means here something more than he's just the offspring of God. More on that in just a second here. John, uh, Luke one thirty-five: the holy offspring inside of Mary's womb shall be called the son of God. Now, why why son of? You know, we might look at that and say, that seems like a sort of a backwards way of saying it. Well, just a God. Well, because in contemporary English we use the term son to refer to a male biological offspring. I have two sons. The son of God can be confusing. In Greek and especially Hebrew, though, there's an idiom here, son of, that just doesn't translate all that well. In, into English, perhaps we have we have sometimes we say you know they're they're the sons of thunder or there is a son of anarchy. Okay, there's one that's contemporary, right? Okay, sons of anarchy. Well, what do we mean? But well, these are these are rebellious people. They, these are these are lawless people. Okay, and so there's there's a, there's an instance here of that usage here, the sons of anarchy, and we find this routinely throughout the Old and New Testaments. Uh, this would have been very clearly understood by the by the readers or hearers of this uh, I've got a few instances here Noah was a son of 500 years well, that means he was characterized he had a nature of a 500 year old man was, of course before the flood when people lived a little bit longer <laughs> it's not quite as bad as he sounds <laughs> uh, Jonas gourd was called the son of a knight which means it was characterized by growing to maturity in a single night. Judas was a son of perdition. Perdition wasn't his father's name. Rather, he was damned. Barnabas, conversely, was a son of encouragement. So he was an an encourager. Encourager spelled wrong. So fix it right here. So he was an encourager. The phrase Son of Man refers both to Christ throughout the scriptures, but also to other human beings denoting humanity. That is being characterized by having human substance. Uh, perhaps if you're familiar with uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and uh, C.S. Lewis, remember he, he when he refers to humans, he, he, he calls them what? Does anybody anybody? Sons of Adam okay so 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 what he means by that they're humans and so when we find here that Jesus is called then son of God we're not saying he's just an offspring of God but rather he is God Bible identifies Christ as having the qualities the characteristics the nature the essence of God himself so he is essentially and substantially God and this is clearly what people understood who heard him referred to this way. And I think we can establish this very plainly here. John five seventeen and 18, Jesus says to them, My father is at work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, because he talks about his father, who's clearly God, the Jews tried to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he called God his own father, making him equal with God. So they recognized what he was saying. "I'm My father is God. That is to say, I am God. Here's one that's even clearer, perhaps. John 10, a few chapters later. Jesus says to them, I have shown you a great many miracles from the father, For which of these are you stoning me? We're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And all he's done so far is say that God was his father. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of the God came, and the scripture can't be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Okay. So the blasphemy is in saying I am God's son. I have the qualities, nature, and essence of God. Now, if you look at this phrase, this this argument here, I don't know, if maybe I'm the only one who reads it this way, it, it almost seems like he's trying to duck the, duck the accusation. Uh, he says, well, you know, the Bible calls angels Elohim, and he calls people Elohim at times, you know, and, and also prophets. He calls them Elohim. So if, if they're called God, what's the big deal? I'm, I'm not claiming equality with God. I'm just saying I'm a son of God, and there's a lot of there's a lot of sons of God, and so what's the big deal? As though he was trying to duck his identity here and say, "No, no, I didn't say that. I didn't. I, no, no, I didn't mean that." And so it almost seems that way, okay? But I say it's not likely. It is true that part of his appeal is to the expansive range of this term Elohim and sons of Elohim, God and sons of God, which includes not only God, but also false gods, angels, prominent men, and in this case, those to whom the word of God came, that is, Old Testament judges and prophets. But realize here, this isn't his whole argument. He's arguing from the lesser to a greater. He also argues that he has a greater claim to the title Son of God than these because he is unique. He is the one whom the Father set apart in his, as his very own and sent into the world. So he does own this title here, Son of God, and, and allows himself to be known as God. Probably the clearest one of all is here in John nineteen seven. The Jews insisted, we have a law, this is at the... Uh, this is at the uh, a trial of Jesus. And uh, they're, they're clamoring for the death of Christ. And Pilate comes back. It's like, what did do? He didn't really do anything wrong. And they said, well, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. So you're, you're very plain that when the Jews hear this title, son of God, they understand what jesus is saying he's saying he's god and that and for them that was blasphemy i mean if somebody calls themselves god and isn't god then it is blasphemy uh, of course that's not what's going on here okay so he is the unique son of god the only god of his kind okay now we got to ask this question here about the eternal generation of the son how does God come into being uh, where does he come from does, does God the father in any sense produce him is that is that part of the sense intended by the fact that he's the father and Jesus is the son that somehow God the father is responsible for the existence of the son that he produced him he created him Well, although we've concluded that this term monogenes, you know, translated sometimes only begotten, uh, uh, we we concluded that's not what it means. The fact that God begot a royal son within time, in fact, that's the term here in Psalm 2-7, he's speaking of the king here, and he says, this day I have begotten you, and the word begotten here is to birth. The suggestion that Christ has been born of God in 1 John five eighteen Clearly here the word is birth, to, to be born, to get you know, out oh. And also Christ's description as the firstborn in Colossians 1, 15 need to be explained. Was Jesus, was, was God born? Was the Son of God born? I mean, other than the fact that he was born as a human in Bethlehem. Was the Son of God born to the Father? The question is complex, having several embedded issues. We're asking, firstly, whether and in what sense it may be said that the Father generated the Son. It's a very storied uh, term here. I, I mean, are all of you familiar with the term eternal generation of the Son? Is that is that part of your Theological vocabulary, or is that something? I this class for okay. <clears> me. <throat> okay, yeah. If if you if you look through the history, church history, and the creeds and such, uh, there's there's this there's this insistence here that the son was begotten but not made, or begotten but not created, which is an interesting phrase. So that there's this this understanding because of this term <coughs> monogenes. Well, he must have been begotten because it's, that's what the word means only begotten and so he was begotten but they clearly say well he couldn't have been made though he wasn't created otherwise we're we we, we imbibed the theological heresy called Arianism okay the the idea that that Jesus wasn't God because was that the Nicene Creed that we talked about yeah apostolic <clears throat> yes okay, apostolic yeah well I, yeah there's well Actually, almost all of them after... says eternally begotten. Yeah, that he was begotten, but not made. Uh, Nicene Creed actually says, begotten out of the very being of the Father. So there you go. Because I thought we talked about one where it says, eternally begotten. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's actually a separate question. The question is, was he begotten? And then the next question is, when was he begotten? Um, So... Right now, we're establishing this, the begotten language, and then, and then, if that is the case, then the question is when. And the Orthodox, those who actually believe that Jesus was begotten, in order to stay Orthodox, you say he has to be somehow begotten sometime in eternity past, um, but not within time. Okay, but but that's that's where we're getting there. Okay. So we're asking if, it, if the father generated the son. Second, we're asking whether that generation, here it is, is eternally wrought or whether it occurs in time. Thirdly, we are asking whether the resultant sonship involves any sort of subordination, that the father is over the son. And if so, whether that subordination is permanent and has a useful basis for establishing gender roles in church, family, and society, which is suggested in First Corinthians eleven. Remember, this is this this, this passage talking about the, father, the fact that the head of every woman is man, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. So there's this sequence here, and in 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 that context, it's 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 designed here. To let women know that even though they answer to men, it does not make them less than men, any more than the fact that Jesus answering to God makes him less than God. Okay, and so that's that's that's, that's the that's the purpose of that context. But in so doing, it it tells us something very important about God that there's a there's a hierarchy. There's the Father. There's the Son. Just like in the, in a the marriage, there's the, the husband and there's the wife. And in the church, and so so on and so forth. Okay, and so that's that's the series of questions that we have to ask. Say, so there's three basic options here that have emerged. One is the idea that God the Father actively generates the Son from all eternity in an ontological sense. That is, in His being, God, in some sense, begot His being. But in a way that Christ may be described not as created. Okay, So he was begotten, but not made. Begotten, but not created. And this is phraseology that you find all through the early church as well. Now this generation does not result in an economic relationship. We don't need to think that the son is eternally subordinated to the son. Since the members of the Trinity are co-equal in power, any subordination of the Son to the Father is temporary in nature and and results from his kenosis, not from his generation. So the only reason that Jesus is under the Father was because he temporarily was that way during uh, his first advent. As such, appeals to this doctrine to argue for gender subordination in human social constructs is to be duly tempered. This is a very ancient position, first attributed to Origin, third century, and <clears throat> captured in almost all of the early creeds. Okay. Uh, in fact, much of the de- okay, I have to make a point here. There's there's been a lot of debate over this in the last three or four years. A um, couple of guys, Carl Truman, Mark Jones, uh, challenged. Uh, they're egalitarians, so they 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 see equality uh, not not only of being but also of of function of men and women. And so, you, so the idea of subordinating women to men uh, is 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 distasteful to them. Okay. And in order to get away from First Corinthians 11, which seems to suggest that, you know, that's the way it is, uh, they say, well, that is the way it was, but that's been reversed, okay? So there was a temporary subordination of Jesus to the Father during the first century, and back in the day, that was the way things were, you know, Women answered to men. But that's not the way it is today. Okay, Jesus is no longer subordinated to the Father in heaven, um, and so neither are men subordin- uh, women subordinated to men. Okay, and so this seems to be that—that's the direction their argument is coming from. They don't want they—they they don't want to see an eternal subordination, and so they say it's not just eternal sonship; it's eternal generation. So, because that gets them away from having to uh, the complementarian view of men and women. Okay, so they would support the ordination of women. Actually, I, I should say that they're not absolute egalitarians. They're they are much more egalitarian than I am. <laughs> let's let's put it that. way Now, Carl Truman wouldn't uh, wouldn't advocate for the ordination of women. Uh, but he would see a much more robust, say, teaching role, a uh, functional role for, for women in, in church life. So, so that helps. And I say the clear winner in these, these debates has been eternal generation. I'm, it's, it's actually sort of sad. I went to ETS, and there was going to be a big debate about the people who denied eternal generation and the ones who affirmed eternal generation, And we all got there. A couple thousand of us in this room, and the two guys who were going to uh, challenge the idea of eternal generation get up and make initial statements. We've changed our minds, <laughs> and so there was no debate. It was really, it was really sort of a, it was, it was really sort of sad. And, and the fact is, I. I I haven't changed my mind and I was kind of disappointed that everybody sort of started bashing my position and there was no one to defend it up there. <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, but let's let's but that's that's sort of the uh, majority position that there is an eternal generation of the son. There's a second view, and that's that God the Father and God the Son were at one point equal in power but that the son submitted voluntarily and permanently to a station subordinate to the father at some point during his first advent. When? Well, usually at one of the occasions where the New Testament appeals to Psalm 2-7. You are my beloved son, today I have begotten you, which is quoted of Christ at his baptism, at his transfiguration and at his resurrection. So take your pick. When did Jesus become the Son of God? Well, one of those points, because that's when the announcement was made. This is a position that was at one time held by John MacArthur, but his, you know, the people under him actually decisively discredited it, and MacArthur changed his mind. So actually, I don't know anybody who holds this position now, but it's was put on the map about thirty years ago when John MacArthur held it. Uh, but uh, he's since retracted it. He's moved to number three here, which is where I am. So the third understanding is that the concept of the one uh, of one member of the Trinity generating another is exegetically unsustainable. that's not what monogonase means, and theologically dubious. So I mean yeah, but you can say that Jesus was begotten but not made, but in every other universe begotten means made. you know what I mean so you can you can say that a cat is not a cat but cats are cats. so um, so that's 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 the tension here. instead we should understand the members of the Trinity to be of a common essence, That's where sonship comes from. Without any need for an eternal act of generating. They just are. This approach has a storied history within reformed life. It extends back to Calvin. He actually says that eternal generation is a useless and foolish idea. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) But, but, uh, But it's more fully explained in Robert Raymond. I know you didn't really care for him last year, but he's got a really good defense. Uh, most who hold this position do ho- affirm that fatherhood and sonship implies a hierarchy within the Trinity, usually an eternal one. Primary concern here is whether that that they can still be called coequal in power. If that's the case, okay. Let's look at some of the data here, it's laid out the positions. your thought about it <clears throat> when they clone something, it still has all the same. Genetic essence. That just be weird. Thought. So this, this this view number four. <laughs> <laughs> cloning you. Well, I mean, Dave's like cloning. You. Here. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like a. Yeah. If you thought of the getting as cloning. I don't know. Splitting up my essence into the second one. That not, not yeah, anything. well. I don't think yeah if you if you actually cloned a person they wouldn't have the same ass they would they wouldn't have the same person so right. I don't yeah I was trying to think of you know, an analogy yeah I, I'm not sure there is, there is one you know I as yeah, hard as we might much as we might want there to be an analogy I'm just not sure there is one is the is is my answer to that. But let's look at some of this data here because there's a number of texts that are appealed to. We've seen above here that monogenes does not mean only begotten. This is the primary historical impetus for this doctrine. Does not speak to ontological origin but to essential substance. Christ is the one and only Son and is in substance God the one and only. This is a critical observation. For without this word, monogenes, as only begotten, it's doubtful that this whole idea would have ever emerged. Even though it's the majority position, I doubt anybody would be advocating for eternal generation if it wasn't for the translation of monogenes uh, early on. We further note from the material above that the fact that God sent his son from heaven implies that his sonship preceded the Incarnation. He was a son before he was sent. This is furthered by his subordinate role during the Old Testament as the angel of Yahweh. Remember Zechariah one, where the angel of Yahweh answers to the Father, clearly in a subordinate situation. And also in the creation ca- account, first uh, Corinthians eight six says this there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things excuse me, from whom all things came and for whom we live and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live so the implication here is whatever subordination there is now extends at least back to the creation okay God the Father was by whom and for whom Jesus was through whom and we go all the way back to Genesis 1 so uh, so um, we find here that there was a, a subordination within the Godhead from day one and probably before. Colossians 1.15, there's this passage where Jesus is called the firstborn, and that should not again be taken as a reference to his ontology. He was not, he was not the first one created. Indeed, to suggest this is to slip very close to the Arian heresy in which Christ is the first and greatest of God's creations. This comes this, this, this Gnostic idea that God cannot be dirtied by, by uh, being uh, connected with normal matter. And so what God does is create something very similar to him, a demiurge who then creates other things. And so there's this sequence of creation. And so we get this material creation, which is much beneath God, um, that comes from God, but only through this, this almost God figure, who's the first and greatest of God's creations. Instead, this verse here that talks about Christ as the firstborn of all creation, probably speaks to his rank or authority. So he's first in rank, he's first in authority, um, and probably first in time as well, but the but the rank is probably the, uh, the the issue here. This, I would argue, is the central tension with eternal generation. While most are careful to affirm that Christ is ontologically begotten but not created, there seems to be no logical explanation how one may make common his essence with another without also making the other to be what he is the idea of eternal generation is notoriously used without a good definition okay it's basically what's generation well it's not making okay well what is it well it's not making <laughs> yeah but that's not what i'm asking for i'm asking for a definition of what it is it's and there, and and it's it's <laughs> clean, yeah <laughs> and, it's, and, and, and there, 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 there's no good answer for the comic It to come. <clears throat> brings us to Psalm 2-7 which is probably one of the most important verses that we come across here uh, in, uh, I want to turn here I don't know that I even spelled it out here it's a well known verse cited many times in the New Testament but we find here I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Or some other translations. Today I have begotten you. The word is yalad, to birth. So this day I have birthed you. Perhaps we could even put it. I say here is almost certainly not a reference to the creation of the generation or the becoming of a being, but rather it's a day of declaration or coronation. And this psalm here is almost certainly a coronation psalm, a royal psalm. This is a psalm that would have been read whenever one of the kings ascended to the throne. There would be a ceremony, of course, and uh, the ceremony would have included the reading of this psalm here. And so every one of the kings of Israel was to be declared to be the son of God so he's he, he's coronated he's declared okay and it establishes here their role in God's government the kings are as God to the people i mean this this is remember we're in a theocratic state okay so the kings are representatives of God and so each one of the kings is a son of God in a rather substantial sense they stand for God. They answer for God. Uh, they represent God to the people. In fact, Second uh, Samuel seven fourteen. This is the uh, this is uh, David's uh, the, when when he gets the uh, the Davidic covenant here, um, and, and the and the statement is made of Solomon. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Okay so so this so the kings of Israel are described here as sons of God. In each New Testament citation of the psalm, remember we we saw uh, earlier that there are three passages where it's used, Matthew 3:17 the baptism, Luke 9 of the transfiguration and Acts 13 of his resurrection. What do these things have in common? Well, these are all major events where where the deity of Christ is highlighted, okay, so at the baptism uh, it, it, it emerges very plainly here, this is the Messiah, this is not just an ordinary person getting baptized down at the, the, the River Jordan with John the Baptist uh, this, is, this is somebody special and in fact, as he comes out of the water, the, the dove flies down, the cloud comes down and the voice speaks, this is my son, okay so announcing who he is, this is the start of his messianic ministry here. Okay, we also say the, see the same thing in the Transfiguration. Uh, if you were here a couple of Sundays ago when I when I preached here, there was a reference to that. Um, uh, and remember the context: Jesus has just told his disciples that you need to not worry about the things of the earth, but rather pursue uh, pursue heavenly things. And he says, you know, that and perhaps he looks around, and sees the disciples, mm, that's a tough one. Uh, and he says, okay, not too many days hence, I'm going to give you a glimpse, some, some of you a glimpse of the kingdom. So that happens three days later. Uh, uh, Peter, James, and John are, are with him. They see him transfigured. They see him, uh, 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 Exposed here for all of in all of his grandeur, he is God, and so then the cloud comes. What does the what does the voice out of the cloud say? No, no, no. this is my Son. Okay, so it's an announcement of who he is. Same thing with the resurrection. Uh, so when Jesus arises out of the grave with all of his with all of his in all of his power, this is my Son. Is is again. The, the, the statement that's made. So, so on each of these occasions, we find an, a, 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 an instance where God is announcing, and I don't want to say that's quite, that's my boy here. You no, know, that's, this is, this is God the Son. And I am, and I am proud to announce him to everyone here. And that's the idea here. So, it's not a statement here that, you know, on that day, you know, God the Son was born. That's not the idea at all, but rather his 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 kingship was announced on each of those three occasions. Of course, Jesus is in the line of Solomon and is the king. Um, he hasn't hasn't assumed his throne yet, but uh, he is the king, and so we would expect him then to be, have this statement made of him: "This is my son. He is he is one of the Davidic kings. He is, in fact, he is the last one, the great one, the the the, the Messiah." So. Okay, so in, in no sense does this mean that Jesus became the Son of God on these occasions, but rather he was announced as God. John five twenty six, one of our last passages here. It's labeled by D. A. Carson as the crux interpretum, the, 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 the central text for eternal generation. We find something of a text that's perplexing. He says here, As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Maybe I should turn you to this one too because there's a context that I want you to see. Uh, So in John 5, there's an announcement of responsibilities that God gives to the Son because of who he is. Um, he uh, he starts out by saying, you know, I give life, verses 21 and 2, the Son gives life. Verse 20 and verse 22 then, because of who he is, I've entrusted all judgment to, to Jesus Christ. We find the same thing repeated then in verses uh, uh, 26 and 27. As the Father has life in Himself, He has granted the Son to have life in Himself, and He has given Him authority to judge. So He's repeated these two themes. Because of Jesus' identity as the God-Man, um, He is He is He has the He has the liberty and the privilege of granting life and exercising judgment. Okay. I think that's the context here but the wording here is, is interesting as the father has life in himself so he has granted the son to have life in himself and proponents of this verse well that's the wrong way of putting it obviously everybody's a proponent of the verse <laughs> of, the, of, the, of the eternal generation uh, idea here sees on this phrase life in himself as an expression of the aseity of God, the isness of God the independence of God remember we talked about last year So the father gave the son self-existence. That is, he generated the son. But this interpretation is paradoxical. If a person could hypothetically grant a aseity or independence or self-existence to another, it would de facto no longer be independent or self-existent. It was given to them by another. Christ would not exist of himself, but of the Father. He would not be independent, but dependent on the Father. Instead, what we have here is almost certainly that the Father is granting to the Son, by virtue of his incarnation and work, the authority to grant life. So he has this life, he has in his possession this life, and he is able to dispense it because of who he is and what he's done. Okay. So again, it doesn't speak to Christ's ontology, his being, but rather his function with the tri- within the triune economy, because of what he did on the cross and in the resurrection, God gives him the privilege and the and, and the uh, and the ability then to dispense life as he wills. He can regenerate people. That's his privilege as God. Okay, thoughts. Last text that uh, has a problem here is that's in, in 1 John five eighteen. 18. says there, Anyone who is born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe. Here there can be no doubt that the word here used is gina'o. Oh, it's not geno- I, It's It's the one birthed. The one born of God. Clearly the phrase cannot be translated God the one and only. He's the one born of God. And if the phrase refers to Christ, we have in this verse a very clear statement that God the Father, in some sense, birthed God the Son. In this case, I'm going to take a little bit of a different tack. Okay, This phrase, the one who is born of God, I don't think refers here to Christ. Okay, Why do I say that? The one who is born of God is a major theme in 1 John Nine times this phrase is used. Never of Christ, but of believers. And the, the question of First John is: is you know what is the first, what's the central question of First John? Second. What's the central question of First John? What, what's First John about? How how can you know? That you have been born of God. I mean, that's that's the question. How, it's, I mean, it's on assurance, but how can you know that you have been born of God? And the answer is given in, in multiple ways. The one who has been born of God is obedient. The one who is born of God, you know, loves the brothers, and so on, so there's a whole list of things. But this is how this is how John consistently crafts it. The one who is born of God, the one who is regenerate, acts or acts in a certain way, does certain things, says certain things, and this is how you know that you have been born of God. So every time you see here this this phrase, the one who is born of God, it's always a reference to the believer. If this is a reference to Christ, it's the only one. Okay? So in this case, I think this is another answer to this central question of 1 John. The answer here given is this. The one who is born of God keeps himself. Okay, the one who is born of God doesn't continue to sin. Rather, he keeps himself safe. Now, people look at that and they recoil a little bit. No, no, I don't keep myself safe. God keeps. God preserves my life. But the fact is, uh, there's a there's a both end with uh, with sanctification. Right, God God preserves us, and we persevere okay so there's, it's always a it's always a two-way street here okay so the answer is here that the one who is born of God perseveres I think that's really what this verse is saying now it is true exegetically speaking that this one born of God could be a reference to Jesus could be but there's all these factors in place that suggest that it's probably here a reference to the believer rather than a reference to, to Jesus in this case. So my conclusion is this, that while the doctrine of eternal generation is a long and storied provenance, it's a very, it's, it's still the majority view. We have to agree that provenance does not truth make. That's because history makes it so. It doesn't mean it's true. Otherwise, we'd all be Roman Catholics, right? <laughs> while the weight of exegetical and theological support it favors the idea of eternal sonship and even eternal subordination. It does not demand or encourage the doctrine of eternal generation, especially as it appears within history in an ontological sense that he was created. Okay. Questions on that? I think it. I, I think it's obvious like what you said because it says right after it, the wicked one doesn't touch him. And could, you know, God... Yeah. When Jesus is God. There's no question that. Right, 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 right. You know. Yeah. Okay. So we'll pick up here next time. I think it'll I think it'll accelerate here as we go through the through the rest of this, particularly when we talk about the attributes that Jesus has. Uh, but uh, we'll continue establishing here that Jesus is God. Very important doctrine. Okay. See you next week.